Welcome to Essential Ethics and this podcast in our second series of Deciding with Children. Today we are discussing transition to adult services as the final stage of preparing young people to leave paediatric care. At RCH, transition to adult service is taken very seriously and runs in parallel to the medical care the young people are receiving in the last few years of their time with us. But it's not just about the young person. It's also about their parents, the clinician, and perhaps even the clinical team receiving them on the other side in their adult centre. I am Professor John Massey, Clinical Director of the Royal Children's Hospital Melbourne Children's Bioethics Centre. To help us understand the process of transition to adult services, we're joined by Evelyn Culnane, Manager of the RCH Transition Service. Welcome, Evelyn. Thank you, John. Underpinning transition to adult services are a number of ethical concepts, and to help us consider these, we're joined by Professor Claire Delaney, ethicist at the Children's Bioethics Centre. Welcome, Claire. Thanks, John. Evelyn, I might start with you and just ask you, what is transition and, and, and what does it look like? Well, when we asked young people and families what transition looked like, they told us they wanted to talk about transition until it was completely exhaustive and they were entirely sick of hearing about transition. So to them, transition needed to start early, it needed to feel supportive and it needed to to feel coordinated and that everyone had roles and responsibilities within that process too and that they knew that they had a voice within that. Gosh, Evelyn, there's a lot there to un uh, to unpack. Um, when should transition start then? Does it start at diagnosis in infancy? Well, if we think about transition as a process of enablement and empowerment, it really sh- could start and should start any time um, during the clinical journey. Although transition literature does promote the idea of transition commencing during early adolescence. And, and it, that certainly fits in with what best practice is telling us in the field. Evelyn, you've talked about this as a process. So I think in the previous era, there was the transfer to adult services mm. all rather quick. And then you've described it as a process. But what are the goals for the child and the family? We want them to feel included I think um, this whole podcast is about finding a voice and I I believe that transition enables that process to occur. Um, It's the perfect setting for allowing young people to explore what's important to them and families and that notion of passing the baton from parent to young person during this process of increasing autonomy and increasing skills and knowledge is, is a really important part of that process. So that's that's a key goal of transition. Um, negotiating independence and, and within that context, how how do does the young person um, negotiate their independence from their parent, from the, the paediatric clinical setting into the adult setting? So there's a whole lot of layers in that and lo- lots of um, different potential barriers that might exist for young people and their families as well as part of that, that we need to consider. Evelyn, there's an awful lot going on there that we've covered already. Claire, I think though, in what Evelyn's put out for us to start with, there are some ethical principles already starting to raise their heads. That's right. I think transition 
really embodies the three core ethical principles that underpin paediatric practice because they go straight to the idea of promoting the well-being and interests of a child at whatever stage that child's at. Also, secondly, respecting a child's developing autonomy, and that's exactly what transition is about. It's about predicting what a child will need in the future as they transition from the paediatric service to the adult service, but also at a deeper level, um, what a child needs to think for themselves to contribute at their own level and um, where they're comfortable. But it also speaks to respect for parents' role and moral authority. And that can be, when everyone's aligned, a terrific balance between, um, you know, respect for parents' uh, authority and all the care they've given to a child and at the same time, building a child's developing autonomy. So it's a balance and I suspect you're already thinking that it may not always get, people might not always get the balance right. <laughs> I I think it'd be interesting to hear from Evelyn about that. Uh, you sort of frame that in terms of respect for autonomy, key principle both for the child and, and for the parents. I, I guess, Claire, in that evolving autonomy is also the sense of best interests and sort of autonomy and best interests can overlap. It's in the best interests of the child to develop their autonomy. But also I think that the older child, the young person, is the person able to determine their best interests. And so I think that that remains an important principle. Yeah. And I think it can get ethically complex because you can have different views about what is in the interests of a child and at different stages of their life. And adolescence is a pretty key time where different views about what is in the interests of, of the young person are around. And so, sure, I think best interests and autonomy tend to overlap the idea that, well, it's good for the child to develop more autonomy as they get older and especially good for them to take more control because they need to when they get into the adult world. But parents may have a different view of the pace. Clinicians may have a different view of the pace of that development and the readiness. All sorts of factors play into it, which is what makes it ethically really an interesting area. Before we go over to Evelyn, I'd also think that there is actually an element of justice in this transition process because there's limited resource at Children's Hospital. And so we are obliged to move the patients on. Now, we don't do it primarily out of a justice issue, but in a way that is also an important thing for us to consider. Mm. Do you find, Evelyn, that justice as framed by John there comes into considerations, like um, it's important you move on because there are others coming. I'm not certain how well that would be received if, or maybe well, it would. Well, I think it, again, it depends on how you couch that and yeah. how you sell that point <laughs> to patients and families. And 
of course, us as clinicians within a, an acute hospital setting where um, we're governed by flow and access issues, the need to move patients on um, successfully is is very important. However, how we do that mm. is just as important. <laughs> so I think it's not a patient-facing issue, Claire. I think it's something that the clinicians need to be thinking about, yep. making room for the new diagnoses coming through. One of the things in ethics, Evelyn, is uh, Claire and I often get involved when things haven't gone so well in somebody's journey, but perhaps you could just take us through some of the things that happen in a, you know, more regular uh, yeah. transition. And I'm thinking yeah. of, you know, some of the kids. So, for example, it might be somebody with neuromuscular weakness who mm -hmm. also has respiratory insufficiency and is maybe on some respiratory support. So there's a number of teams, there's a number of things happening. So what are some of the things in transition? Uh, young people and families really appreciate the idea of someone being able to bring the whole plan together and being able to see the big picture. So although a young person with neuromuscular needs might have respiratory issues, they might have neurological issues and orthopaedic issues and other things, the opportunity to think forwards, the opportunity to think about how they fit in to the transition process, how their parents fit in, how the process enables them to determine what the plan looks like and, and the timing of it. So working out with them what, uh, what their preferences might be in terms of where they might go to if, if there is a, indeed a choice. And sometimes there isn't. And that's where, again, ethically, how do we then um, marry up that responsibility? If we know a particular service has excellent adult medical services to cater for that particular condition and that young person and family want to go somewhere else, what, what do we do? Um, what, are, what is our responsibility to open up those options, to explore those options um, and to enable that plan to look as patient and family centred as possible? So I think ideally when transition works well, we provide opportunities for young people and families to have a say to meet the adult services, um, ideally before they transfer to adult care, thus beginning that process of familiarisation and, and comfort and really sort of determining what that plan looks like, how that plan will happen and working really closely with young people and families to enable that to happen. And there's a whole lot of goodwill that goes along with that, not only from the young person and families in, from paediatric clinicians, adult clinicians, other services, and let's not forget community needs as well, disability supports, GPs. Um, it's, it involves a whole lot of people in that process. And do you find that people come to you already starting to think about that? So if we think maybe they're you know, 15, end of year 9, beginning year 10, that the kids or families are thinking that, or it's a bit of a surprise when they turn up to transition clinic? We get a bit of both. <laughs> and it certainly helps when good clinicians are talking about transition. And if they're thinking about future needs in their clinics, it, it already plants the seeds. Um, and it makes our job a whole lot easier because um, they're expecting that conversation and they're anticipating what that conversation might look like. However, 
at 15 or or certainly 16 if they haven't had the opportunity to have those discussions in the clinical setting with their care teams, it can be quite confronting for them. And we've had situations where it's been quite upsetting, um, particularly for parents who've been on that medical journey throughout that young person's life. And it brings up potential issues around grief and, and at, at point of diagnosis, um, at various points in that medical journey and trauma that, that might rear its head um, as part of the idea of moving on, the idea that the young person has survived into adulthood. Which obviously wasn't always the case when some of these young people were diagnosed, particularly with things like newborn screening and then, or others, perhaps not even with newborn screening, but a long diagnostic odyssey. And then a while to settle into a, a team and a treatment regimen that suits and then having it potentially uprooted. Yes, and, and a family that they've built as part of their time at the children's. So the clinicians caring for them as a family unit are very meaningful and, and these are relationships and, and this is trust that's been developed over many, many years. So the thought of leaving that comfort zone and home, and many, many families call it, refer to the RCH as home, is terribly frightening. Yeah, I think from an ethics perspective, just listening to all of those dimensions of transition, two things strike me. One is the importance of having a shared language around transition so that everybody is at least understanding each other or has has the potential to understand each other about what is good about talking about transition, why is it important and what are the harms if you don't do it well or don't do it at all. And it also highlights how from those three basic ethical principles, um, you know, the first one is promoting the well-being of the, and interests of the child. And if you really take that seriously, then transition has to be part of that, especially when you know as a clinician that this child is going to eventually transition. So it becomes really um, a strong part of your work as a, as a paediatric clinician. And respecting the developing autonomy of the child is absolutely central to transition. Uh, and the respecting parents' moral authority doesn't mean um, doing everything that they ask for because they have moral authority to ask for it. But, you know, it really goes to the heart of the role of the clinician as an advocate. You know, if they're going to advocate for transition and the goods of transition to, to parents, they need to have that language as part of their clinical role. I, I, that's what occurs to me from listening to you. It just seems so central to good care in a children's hospital. So, so Evelyn, have you got some language or phrases that, mm. that you like to use to help young people and their families see what transition's about? Well, I think the, the whole idea that transition um, is a process of enablement and empowerment first and foremost... It allows them to know that they have a voice and that they are important. And whilst in a in acute hospital setting, it might seem like there's a lot of interventions that happen to them, 
This is actually a process that allows them to sit back and think about what they need and what they want. And so it doesn't happen often in a clinical setting, as you know, and um, that's where transition can be couched as a really positive process to undergo. And for parents too, the idea of letting go and, and giving agency back to the young person is incredibly important, but we need to consider where they're coming from, their readiness, cultural sort of considerations too. We've come across that in our sessions with with families. And there may be other considerations, other barriers that might exist that make it a little bit difficult for us to use, find the right language around transition. But ultimately, um, it's really handing power and agency back to them. And so it's it's great. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. One of the things, Claire, that I, when I talk to my young people before I send them to what I've affectionately called Culnane College, this is Evelyn's, Evelyn's team, is that it's really important for the young person to get out of what I call kiddie land, which is the children's hospital, for them to be able to see themselves as a young adult and think of themselves as a young adult. And as long as they're still turning up here at children's hospital, they're going to be a kid. Mm. And then also try and empower the, the families or think about the families to say it's really good for you to let Jimmy see himself as a young man. And my impression is what lots of parents are worried about, and it's interesting you use the word moral authority, I like the word moral authority, <laughs> is harder perhaps, is, is they often feel they're going to be cut out of the equation and so they've spent all this time building up the network, supporting the kid and they're going to turn up to an adult hospital and they'll all of a sudden not be talked to or considered or, or sent out of the room. And I'm not saying that that's without sort of in a past history real fear that it, that could happen like that. And what I say is that Jimmy's going to, instead of taking you there as mum or dad, he's going to take you there as a patient advocate, as would happen. And that might be mum and dad initially and later on that might be a, a partner or a loved one. Mm. Yeah, in in ethics consultations, we often try to identify the various options that are available for people to act. And there's almost, there's almost always more than one ethically appropriate option. And to unpack each option by saying, what are the ethical pros and cons of, you know, speaking with families, for example, and, and suggesting that it's important for their child to to go and move to the transition space and do things independently. Now, we tend to think this is, and we've talked about this being a good thing, but we also, it it is also important ethically to think, well, what, what could be harmful even about having that discussion for parents or what would they find hard? And I think what you've raised is, a really important point that ethically it's still important to acknowledge parents' difficulty with this and that is a shift in how you're respecting parents. You're not respecting their authority to make the decision, you're just respecting the fact that they've made decisions for so long and now it's hard to let go. It's hard enough outside of the hospital for, you know, so so when you've devoted and your whole life has revolved around caring for your child, 
letting go is even harder. So I think your point is really well made and ethically it's it's important not to dismiss it and only think, well, I must respect the child and uh, what's what's good about transition because there are pros and cons of every conversation and every action. So you, being aware of that is helpful. Thanks, Claire. Well, Evelyn, one of the things is that it means that the child has to take on some stuff and responsibility, perhaps that they haven't had to do before. Do you, do you find that kids want to do that? They really don't want to do that? How does it run? It's a bit of a mixed bag. <laughs> Um, but we do find that if we have parents and carers on board with the process, it works so much better. And that enablement needs to occur from the home. Once they leave our clinic and they walk away back outside into the outside world, we're dependent on families and young people to continue that plan and to work on these goals independently. We do talk about sharing of responsibility too, with with parents and young people and, and that's part of the transition process that enables them to function independently. But we also talk about these skills being transferable across other life domains too. So work, school and relationships and other things. So it's a very broad brief, but I'm getting a hint from you, Evelyn, that when you mentioned barriers at the beginning, that maybe the, the parent sitting in between the clinician and the kid mm. and is the main barrier or enabler? Sometimes, yes. I think the young person also can be their own barrier and enabler. And so their mindset to embrace transition or not can can make a huge difference. I, I worry when kids, and, and I think we have to leave just for the moment, kids with you know, very significant intellectual disability perhaps aside just for the moment, although it's process very important for them as well to be included. But I do see kids sort of ducking their responsibility a bit and they get quite worried as to what's going to happen, not just in their medical decision-making, but in the other aspects of their life. Do you get a sense of that too? Oh, absolutely. I think um, many a comment has come up from a young person just to indicate that it's just easier if mum does it. Oh, I've got year 12, I've got so much on this year. And and parents use use that line on very frequently too as an excuse for not engaging in the goal setting process or the transition process. But the the issue is that at the end point, as we know in our hospital, patients typically transfer after they finish year 12. And if they haven't had the opportunity to think about and actively work on these goals and, and, the tra- and be engaged in the transition process fully it could be quite detrimental for them when they're actually forced into an adult setting, not having had the space and the time and the, um, the opportunity to um, embark on this process. I mean, we work quite closely with a number of teams and I think one of the things that's worked very well, I've been closely uh, involved with cystic fibrosis and also with neuromuscular weakness and I think we've been very lucky to have a team to send these kids to. So we know they're going to land and they're going to land softly and be involved. But I'm not sure that that's always the way. And and I know that uh, in some ways it's potentially quite harsh out there. And what worries me for those kids and perhaps families, and I don't know if the kids are just not taking it on, they've learned some uh, helplessness or they're sort of forced into that helpless role. It uh, worries me what might happen. Yeah, I, I was thinking before... Um 
and when discussing, you know, the role of the clinician, uh, ethically it's important to be an advocate. But what about when they know they're not going to have a soft landing and it's actually not a great clinic out there and they know they're not going to get a lot of support, what does the clinician do then if they're pushing the child forwards into a space they're not too happy about? It's about creating that safety net. And whilst there might not be equivalent services or even access to the same sorts of services that they were used to in paediatrics, it's about providing a backup plan. It's about providing key people, key contacts, key services that they can tap into and ask for support from should they get stuck. So part of transition is about that safety net, if you like, and um, creating that safety net for those patients in particular that don't, you know, won't have a soft landing and where equivalent services just aren't there. Do you involve GPs in the process? Absolutely. I can imagine if you're lucky enough to have a good GP and perhaps for, for clinicians, the transition process early is trying to help the families establish a good relationship with their GP because a lot of the functions of a general paediatrician or a subspecialty paediatrician are going to be doing a lot of jobs that GPs yes. will need to be able to do. Absolutely. And and the more we can involve GPs throughout the whole transition process, the better. We're not there yet, I don't think, in, in paediatrics. And there is much to be said about the advantages of engaging in really dedicated shared care processes between tertiary hospital settings and, and general practice. But um, certainly in the transition space, it's vital that we include GPs in that process. In our discussions, Claire, you frame this in terms of best interests and, and respect for autonomy with some eye on harms, which we mm. just about touched on. But um, Evelyn, have you had any examples where it's gone badly for various reasons and uh, the child and the child and family are harmed by, not so much by transition, but perhaps by the lack of it or the lack of engagement? Well, besides um, escalating anxieties for young people and families, that's probably first and foremost, and that often drives potential harm up. And um, it if, if we're not embarking on the process early enough and not talking about it early enough, we don't have the luxury of communicating with our adult colleagues about the complexities of, of these patients coming through. And so their base knowledge as a starting point is going to be limited when, when these patients land in their setting. That's not discounting the what the young person, the family might be going through. So not only is it a disadvantage, or um, well, morally it's probably uh, not the way we'd like to manage transition, but besides disadvantaging our patients and families, it's a huge disadvantage for our adult clinicians receiving these patients and families. I mean, one of the things, Claire, that I've seen, but not often, but being a good worrier, is, and it's something I share with the families as we're talking about transition and trying to put in that positive light of seeing yourself as an adult and your parents seeing you as an adult and moving forward is that I have seen times when kids and particularly uh, their families have not engaged, got to year 12, it's a busy year, and my sense is 
uh, Evelyn, you do a lot of your work before year 12, knowing year 12 is, is busy. And then it'll drop out of care. And then all of a sudden you get a call from the emergency department and there's a 19 or 20-year-old person with complex medical needs who's been chuffing on quite well for 18 months at home, all of a sudden in trouble. And that is a terrible time. They can't be admitted to the hospital, to our hospital, and have to then be transferred to an adult service, which might even be the nearest one to us, but not their nearest one. Have you had some cases along those lines? Just today, John. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) So it's it's not unusual that I would um, be speaking to my colleagues in the emergency department about some of these older patients coming through and continuing to come through, where we transfer them to. The, the whole issue around timing and is that transfer complete? Or well, how long's a piece of string? <laughs> yeah. It also, it goes back to really spending some time thinking about what does a benefit mean for this child with this condition and thinking about it early and, you know, thinking about all their interests, not only what do they need in a clinical sense, but what will they need in a a psychosocial, emotional sense as they get older? And so keeping, keeping that in mind, it seems to me the message I'm certainly taking away is that transition should be absolutely integral to care and at an early part of care and regular, <laughs> regularly attended to. I'm going to augment that, uh, Claire, by saying I think it, it goes beyond treatment, which can be so easy to focus on in clinic where it's fast and you've got to ask all sorts of questions about coughs and tummies and all sorts of other things, and that's good treatment. And then this is really part of care for the patient and uh, really fantastic from Evelyn to hear about the in- trying to achieve that integration of the young person into their what will become their adult community and networks. We recently published a paper which includes the idea of children having a cluster of interests, uh, health, (laughs) adequate shelter and emotional care and bonds, but also other things like the need to play and to have education and to start to be able to think for themselves. So this sort of cluster of, of interests that we know children need could be a good way of thinking ethically about what what does this child need in, and family need from that uh, richer description of care. Yes, and transitions really is a good time to be thinking about those other elements to the to the person that often mm. as a clinician you don't necessarily see and you really have to go asking and, mm. and finding out about. And it sounds like that might also be one of the enjoyable parts. I can see you smiling, Evelyn, and I think that might be you know, delivering good care and that part mm. of that holistic care is one of the joys of the job that you do. And isn't it lovely when we have one of these transition clinics with our adult partners when we're handing over a young person, we're not handing over a patient, we're handing over a young person who's spent 18, 19 years under our care and they have life interests and they have goals, life goals, and they have aspirations and this goes beyond their medical care. And so transition's really an opportunity for us to farewell our patients in the best way possible. Evelyn, just in 
back to a sort of practical point, how much time do you spend with the child or the young person alone and the, and the parent alone in, in this? It varies. It really does vary on how the interaction and, and interplay between the young person and their parent, whether that parent is happy to sit back and allow the young person to lead the discussions and simply just to guide that process, and that works really well. There are opportunities for young people to come in on their on their own as well, and that also works equally well. And we find sometimes that young people are shooing their parents away because they want time alone with us, and we've had that happen even on telehealth, which has been really positive. And we've had such rich discussions with young people when that happens, and they will often provide real insights into what might be going on for them and what barriers potential barriers they might be facing as well. I certainly found it very helpful to hear back from the transition team to sort of augment what I'm doing in the last few few years of their care. In deciding with children, I've been very interested in this idea of coaching. So are you coaching the kids and coaching the parents to let go and coaching the parents to coach the kids? Well, I think all of the above but also coaching clinicians inadvertently. So when we, when we see patients and families, we're copying you into our notes and uh, allowing you to have some insight into what these conversations have, have been and um, what's important for young people and their families. So thereby, they're enabling their voice to be heard more widely. Claire, one of the things in this um that I'd just like to start a little conversation. I don't think we're necessarily going to have time to finish it on this podcast is that as we think about what deciding with children and the sort of transition and then the final transfer being sort of the end of our, our role, I think I mentioned at the beginning in my introduction about working towards an independent decision maker. Do you think that is a little goal here? Obviously, Claire, I'm interested in, and Evelyn, um, mm. is the young person really with this chronic disease I'm thinking of, expected to be the independent decision maker or is it something more complex? Yeah, I think when you raise that idea as a goal of transition, I was wondering what Evelyn thought about that. From from an ethics perspective, I think it's a, a band within what is in the interests of a child. One One interest is definitely to have independence in being able to think for themselves, being able to see ahead about what matters and to be able to articulate and say what matters. And that sometimes needs practice if they're not used to doing that. Whether it's um, a sufficient goal to be the even major one of transition, I, I would hesitate to say, and I'll be interested to hear what Evelyn says. And the reason I'm hesitating is because there are many adults who are able to think for themselves and think independently, but that's not the only goal of being an, a sort of well-functioning adult, <laughs> independent thinking. In fact, sometimes it's better if you join with others more often than not in thinking about through things. So I, I think independence of thinking is a worthwhile thing to do, but not sufficient so I'm I'd, I'd agree with you, Claire. Yeah. I think um, uh, it's, and I go back to my earlier point around transition, really providing young people with agency 
And so if they feel like and, and they truly believe that they have voice within this process and that's what we're aiming for, what that looks like might vary from young person to young person. So agency is different to independence. Ag- agen- it could include independence. Yes, yeah. Um, and, but for some young people, as we've discussed before, it, it may not be possible in some areas. Mm-hmm. So we're aiming perhaps for increased agency and a soft landing. Sounds good to me, John. <laughs> well, I think that's perhaps the great place to end. It's been a fascinating discussion and, and Evelyn, it's just wonderful to hear the richness that's behind transition. It goes beyond just moving from paediatric care to adult care and thinking about as an opportunity to think about the whole person. So thank you very much for your work, but also, of course, thank you very much for joining us on Essential Ethics. Thank you, John. Thanks, Claire. And Claire, thank you, because I think you have this wonderful knack of seeing where the the ethical moments are and seeing what clinicians are doing and framing it up to give it you know, a tremendously important uh, background. Uh, so uh, it's, it's fantastic to have you on Essential Ethics. Thank you. Thanks, John. And to our listeners, if you've enjoyed the podcast, please give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with your colleagues. This podcast was made possible by the generous support of the Friends of the Children's Bioethics Centre Auxiliary. The podcast was produced in the studio of RCH Creative Services. If you would like to find out more about the activities of the RCH Children's Bioethics Centre, including our annual conference, please visit us at rch.org.au forward slash bioethics. Essential ethics, be inspired. Thank you.